Open your Bibles this morning to the book of Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. I want to challenge you, if you're not familiar with uh, chapter 2 of Colossians, highlight it in your Bible. If you don't have a highlighter, this is, this is what I would have you do, maybe. If you have a pen, just underline, as we go through the sermon, every word that pops out at you during the message. And, or you could just save time and underline the whole thing now. It is a powerful passage. It's beautiful. And I always say this, one of the truly great passages of the Bible. And there are so many like that. But again, one of the, one of the joys of being a pastor is I get to pick whatever I want. And you just can't mess up Colossians chapter 2. Uh, even I can preach that pretty good. And uh, I hope it is life-changing for you as it was for the church in Colossae. An interesting church in and of itself, by the way. We'll see that in just a minute. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Would you stand with me as we read God's Word together? Paul is writing to this church, but I always say God is writing to you and I as well, those watching online and here at First Baptist of Hazel, when he says this, I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these words, how transforming they are. Help us to understand our very purpose, our hope, our goal, and our identity as a church. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. This morning's message is entitled, The Wonderful Agony of Our Faith. That sounds odd, does it not? These are from Paul, The Wonderful Agony of Our Faith. And I hope and pray that you'll understand that title by the time the message ends. Many of you have probably never heard of Harry Coover, but probably most of us have heard of what he invented and it's probably in your home, it's called super glue. Now there was a time before super glue. I don't know what people did, but I found that super glue is pretty handy. Before super glue, you just used regular glue and it took 24 hours to dry. Who has 24 hours? Uh, Harry Cooper developed super glue by accident. He was an engineer for Eastman Kodak and was working on a task assigned to, uh, to him to make clear plastic gun sights. The material he invented to make the gun sights was terrible for making gun sights, but it was great at bonding things together. So super glue was born. In Colossians chapter two, Paul is sharing with us about something 
that is better than superglue in bonding people together. And his name is Jesus Christ. I think it's important to know that uh, uh, what Paul's viewpoint was when he wrote these words. Most of the churches at that point, and this is right around 60 AD, were founded by Paul. He established most of the churches in the Western world uh, throughout Europe. But there are some exceptions to that. I know I've shared with you before that he did not uh, start the church in Rome. In fact, he had never been to Rome uh, when he wrote Romans. Now he's in Rome, ironically, he's in jail. He, this is what we call one of the prison epistles. And uh, he, he was there writing books like Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon as well as this while he's in jail. And so as he's writing these books and sharing with these congregations, he decides to write really two congregations that he had never, where he'd never been and he didn't start those churches. One is in Colossae and the other is a nearby town which is called, or city called Laodicea. And he mentions them in this passage, although the book is entitled Colossians. You could enti uh, entitle it Colossians and Laodicea because they meant it for both churches. Now, this is a wonderful thing for Paul uh, because the gospel is doing what the gospel is supposed to do. He has shared his faith in Jesus Christ with others. Having received Christ, those converts, some of them went around planting churches. And so one of them or more went to Colossae, started this church there, went to uh, Laodicea and started the church there as well. So now he's sharing his heart with them because he is in prison. He has not been there, but he's heard many reports, both good and bad, and he is deeply concerned for them. He knows as new churches, they are vulnerable to all kinds of problems and things that may come along. And so he writes this book to help them. That brings us to chapter 2, verse 1. He's not just concerned for them, he is in agony for them. He is agonizing for the church. Chapter 2, verse 1 says this, I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. This word struggling is a Greek word. Now, I don't normally mention Greek words to you. Most of the time, preachers mention Greek words to make us preachers look smart. Having said that, <laughs> the Greek word is the word agona, which is the word that we use to get the word agony. It literally is where we get the word agony. And so Paul says to the church in Colossae and the church of Laodicea, he says, I want you to know how much I am in agony for you. Now, he's not saying I'm in agony because I'm in prison. I'm in agony because I've lost my freedom. I'm in agony because I'm being persecuted. He's not using the word agony for any of that stuff. He could I'm in agony because I have a thorn in my flesh, a physical disability, he could say that, but he doesn't mention any of those things. This agony is a wonderful agony because he loves them and hasn't met them, but he already loves them and he's concerned for them. And so he uses this particular word. My translation uses the word struggling. Your translation may say, say something else, but it literally means agony. I think that means that Paul spent this is the heart of the agony. 
Paul spent a great deal of time in prayer for them. That's where he's agonizing, by the way. He's not worried. He's not a worry wart. And he's just sitting around uh, worrying nervously that something terrible is going to happen to these churches. He is agonizing in prayer. Now, a lot of times when we pray, just like my opening prayer a while ago, they may be heartfelt, and, and I, I hope my prayers are always heartfelt, but there's not a lot of agonizing in the prayer. Now, if you've been married very, married very long, if you have children, you know what it means to agonize in prayer for people that you love or situations you have no idea. Is my kid going to come home tonight? Are they... Are they gonna? Are they gonna go to jail? Or are they? Are they going to turn out okay? You're agonizing uh, over what's going to happen. If you've if you've dealt with politics, you've probably spent some time in prayer in agony. So you understand what it is to agonize in prayer. It's those heartfelt prayers that go on for hours. And here's what God did for Paul. I don't know what he's done for you or what he's going to do for you. Be careful what you pray for. This is what God did for Paul. God decided that he needed Paul to spend large blocks of time in prayer. So he got him arrested. <laughs> That's what God did. Paul was doing what he was supposed to do, what God called him to do, and what God led him to do. And by doing what God let him to do, he ended up in jail for years. And the reason is twofold. One, there are, there are epistles in the uh, books in the New Testament that need to be written. God already has plans for the New Testament. And so he plans to use the hand of Paul to write many of these books. And in order to do that, that takes time. And it requires Paul to be in a spiritual place where God can speak through him and through his hand to write these words. And so God decides, I, I, I think that Paul needs a big block of time to write these letters. So I'm going to give him that by having him arrested. <laughs> and so he's in jail, not a lot to do in jail. If you were to ask Paul, Paul might say, I would prefer to be free today. I would prefer to be out evangelizing, starting new churches or encouraging other churches or checking up over here or going on that mission trip there. Paul was a doer and God knew that. So we need to slow him down a little bit, free up his schedule so that he could write these books. The second thing is God wanted to free up his schedule so he could spend large blocks of time in prayer. He understood that these, these churches needed advice and they need counsel through letters and they needed prayer. They need, God wanted Paul to be the prayer for, uh, warrior, the father of these churches, so he could pray over his children. And that's how Paul saw it. In a very family-like, parental kind of shepherd way, he's pouring out his heart to God. He's anguishing. It may be you got fired recently. And you think that's a bad thing. Maybe God had you get fired because he wanted to free up your schedule so you, you can spend more time agonizing in prayer for the glory of God. Now, I'm not saying that's why you got fired. And don't get fired this week and say, well, the preacher told me <laughs> this is a God thing. God, God works in all kinds of ways. And sometimes he will free up our schedules unexpectedly because he has a reason for that. And so that's what he did through Paul and for Paul. By the way, that word agony is almost always used in a negative connotation, both then and today. 
when God was pronouncing judgment on the Israelites in the Old Testament for their idolatry generation after generation. And it came to the book of Jeremiah. During the day of Jeremiah, Jerusalem would fall to the Babylonians. They'd come in and destroy all the walls around Jerusalem, destroy all the buildings in Jerusalem, destroy Solomon's magnificent temple, and loot everything and take everything of value away. And it was just rubble when they were done. Jeremiah foresaw this. God gave him the vision of what was going to happen, and he spends his life and his ministry pleading with them to change, to repent one last time so that God would change his mind, but they would not hear it. Tore up his scroll, put him in stocks, and as a result, God judged them. But in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 19, Jeremiah actually uses this very word for agony. He says, oh, my anguish. My anguish, I writhe in pain. And here's the word, oh, the agony of my heart. My heart pounds within me. I cannot keep silent, for I've heard the sound of the trumpet. I've heard the battle cry. Disaster follows disaster. The whole land lies in ruins. In an instant, my tents are destroyed. My shelter in a moment. He says, just like that. It would all come to an end. And that's exactly what happened. And so he's in agony because he's God's prophet and he knows it. Nobody else believes it, but he knows what's going to happen. But through the transforming power of Christ, even our language is transformed. Isn't that amazing how he does that? I told you before in Hebrews chapter 10, for example, one of those beautiful, wonderful passages where uh, the writer to the Hebrews says in one of the verses, let us consider how we may provoke one another. I love preaching that passage. It's just magnificent. And of course, anytime we provoke one another, it's almost always negative. Paul, I think, says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Do not provoke your children, literally. Same word, but in, in Hebrews chapter 10, he says, let us consider how we may provoke one another toward love and good deeds. That is Christians, because we have been forgiven by Christ, but transformed by Christ, even our language, whereas the whole world is provoking each other toward hate and anger through Christ we're to provoke others toward love and good deeds. That word of provocation is transformed because of our faith. This is another word, agony, here that is a transforming word. Paul says, I am in agony for you because I'm praying so fervently for you. So I think Paul is saying, I am greatly conflicted. I am in heartfelt prayerful agony for you. Why? Well, he tells them, and this is our word for today, only two things. Number one, uh, well, I'll tell you what the two things are. He has two goals for the church in Colossae and Laodicea and First Baptist Church of Azel and every other church on the planet has two goals and only two goals. And he tells us in, in Colossians chapter two what those two goals are. Goal number one, the first goal for the Colossian church and for First Baptist Church is found in verse 3, which is the discovery of all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you look in verse 3, he says that uh, it is uh, right after the yellow text. It says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And he uses the word treasure, and he refers to wisdom and knowledge as 
treasure, like money. He said, this is of great value. And so he writes all this so that to tell them that there are, there's hidden treasure here and it's hidden because nobody else knows it's there. They're unaware of it. By the way, he says, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It sounds like the same thing, wisdom and knowledge. So if you want to know the difference, knowledge is the understanding of truth. Knowledge is the understanding of truth, but wisdom is the ability to apply truth in our life and in this world. Knowledge is the understanding of truth. Wisdom is the ability to apply that truth in our life and in this world, and it is hidden to most people. Pastor Adrian Rogers once told about a Spanish armada that was sailing off the coast of Florida. And I know I've shared this news story with you before, but I'll share it again. This armada went down uh, in a hurricane many, many years ago, and it was loaded with gold and silver. Had tons of treasure, millions and millions, tens of millions of dollars worth of gold and treasure in that ship. But nobody knew where it went down. They knew it was somewhere off the coast of Florida, and they knew it was in a hurricane. So they're on the bottom of the ocean at set for years, for decades, for a century, just right there. Most people assumed it was probably somewhere far out where they couldn't find it or they couldn't get to it without scuba tanks or a sub. But in fact, it turns out it was in extraordinarily shallow water and people by the millions over the century had been swimming right on top of all that treasure, right over. They could have just swam down and grabbed some of it in the sand, but they couldn't see it because it was just a little hidden by the sand. Right there within their reach, millions of dollars of gold and silver and they had no idea. So it makes you want to look around a little more carefully the next time you swim in the ocean. Finally, someone uh, started looking for the ship specifically. They did the research and finally found it right there in super shallow water. Paul says, there is treasure for you and me, and most of the world misses it. It's hidden to them, but revealed to us. So many of us and those around us are yet to discover the full treasure we have available to us. And Paul says that treasure is found in Jesus Christ. That's the hidden part. That's step number one. Goal number one is Jesus Christ. The first goal here, the first treasure is in verse two. And it says in verse two, if you go back to that verse, if you look in the yellow part, verse two, my purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in the love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. Or you might say it this way, that they may know the mystery of God and his name is Christ. So goal number one for every person in every church in the world is to discover the treasure that is Jesus Christ. How do we do that? How do you and I meet goal number one? Well, 
Here are the steps that he gives us. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 2, I'll read it again. My purpose is that they, here it is, be encouraged in heart and united in love, those two things, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding. There's the third thing. In order that they may know, that's the fourth thing, the mystery of God, namely Christ. So number one, he says that they may be encouraged. Now he's talking about people who have not yet come to Christ, people who are coming to church, but they have not yet accepted Christ. They, they've heard the gospel and they're thinking about it. God's spirit is convicting them and leading them. They're in that process. They're in that moment of their life, but they haven't come there yet. And what's interesting is the first thing that Paul says is that they may be encouraged. Isn't that interesting? Now, I understand as a pastor, and you understand theologically, that in order to get saved, there has to be a moment where we realize why Jesus died on the cross. And he died on the cross for your sins and my sins. He paid the penalty literally for our sins. The Bible says we all sin. That is, we all do bad things, say bad things, and think bad things. And because we have sin in our life, it separates us from God eternally but also in this life as well. God loves us. He doesn't want us separated from us from him. So he sent his son Christ to pay the penalty on the cross so our sins can be forgiven. Purely the mercy of God. And once our sins are forgiven, we can establish a relationship with God. He saves us. We are literally saved from our sins through Christ. And as a result, we have God living in our life in this world, and we get to live with God eternally in heaven. And so that's what he's talking about. And all of that process is begun by the words encouraged. Now, I could, as a pastor, stand up here and just beat you up with your sin. Now, chances are I don't need to do that. You've probably been beating yourself up about it. But I, I would assume that you being in God's house, you are aware that you do things you shouldn't do. You're aware that you sin. I'm aware that you sin. But the first goal, as you notice, when people come in here is not to beat them up with sin. Even though we sin, Paul would say it in a way that is gentle and caring, that helps you understand that you're a sinner and I'm a sinner and that we need a Savior, but that we're not despicable people to God, that God loves us. That's why he sent Christ. He loves us. And so when people come in and they have not come to faith in Christ, if it's their first visit in this church, I would hope that they walk out and they say, I'm encouraged. That's step one. It's interesting. Now, they can be under conviction and still be encouraged. I'm encouraged. Now I know what to do in life. Now I know where to begin in life. It has something to do with this Jesus. So that's the first thing he says. I want you to be encouraged in heart. So when people walk through the doors, whether members or visitors or regular attenders, encourage them. Now, here's, here's what, you know what I'm going to say. Just logistically, I'm not a relational genius or anything, but I can tell you, you will never encourage somebody you don't speak to. You will never encourage anybody that you don't speak to. If you over here never talk to the people over there, you never meet them, or vice versa, by the way, then you will never encourage them. And there are people, because it's a big, wide sanctuary, that may have been coming here for months, and you have not spoken to them a single time. And you say, well, they're over on the other side. Well, you might go sit over on the other side. 
<laughs> Would it kill you <laughs> to meet those people? They're nice people, by the way, and vice versa. Or maybe it's not a problem that you're sitting over here and they're over there. The problem is they're on the road right behind you and you hadn't even turned around to say, hi, my name is so-and-so. And I get it. I told you, as we've grown as a church, these were house churches probably in Laodicea and Colossae. They're in one room together. You know, they didn't wear, hi, my name is Bob, stickers on their, on their outfits. But it's not too hard in one room of just a small group of 20 or 30 people to get to know everybody. That's small church mentality, and there's something wonderful about small churches. I loved that when we first came here. Everybody knew everybody. You didn't have to ask them, now, do I know you, or, or is this your first time? Everybody knew. If it was their first Sunday, they knew it was their first Sunday because everybody in the church was staring at them. <laughs> because they really stood out. Well, now we don't know who's visiting and who's members, and, and you can go months or even years without knowing. And I've told you this before. You go greet somebody, that hypothetical, and say, hi, is this, is this your first Sunday, or have you been visiting a wall? And they say, well, actually, I'm a deacon. Well, <laughs> and if I ask them that, then it's really bad. So, you know, and, and that happens. And so this, this, there's this lump in our throat. And as a result, we just don't shake their hand. We don't do anything that's encouraged. But that's step one. Do you not want them to come to faith in Christ and you don't know where to start? Here's where you start. You go over there and say something that is encouraged to, encouragement to them. You don't have to preach at them. You don't have to be on a long tirade for 15 or 20 minutes like the preacher does. You can just say, hi, my name is so-and-so. Let me encourage you today. Do something or say something that will lift them up. Be encouraged in heart. That's step one. Step number two, he says, is to be united in love. Did you notice that? Wow. That is a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly challenge for every single church. I love you guys. And one of the reasons that Cherry and I have been able to stay here for so long, this is our 25th year here, is because you are a loving, united group. And that doesn't come automatically. And sometimes it doesn't come easily. It is a choice that you make as a church every single week that I'm going to be united. Because there are a lot of different people here. I mean, don't look around too much, but it's a pretty diverse group. Some of you are interesting characters. <laughs> you know, the outfits you're wearing or the hairstyle that you have or the hair color you have or the tattoos you have or whatever, whatever you've got going on in your life. It's, it's, a, it's an azel group right here. And I love that. I just love that. There is diversity here, and as a result of the fact that we are so very different, some of you are city people, some of you are country people, some of you are, are people that just moved into town from California in the last year or two, you're, 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 you're convicted Californians. <laughs> you fall under conviction and came to Texas, amen. Yeah. By the way... A Christian Californian is the same as a Christian Texan. He is your brother or sister in Christ. And uh, they are welcome here, as long as they get saved first. <laughs> you know, we're a diverse group, and I love that, but it does make us different. So in our difference, we're kind of like, uh, I don't know. The city people are thinking, that guy's wearing a cowboy hat. I don't know. The country people are thinking, oh, that's a city guy. I'd recognize him. Well, I heard that person was from California or wherever. And you, no, 
No, we are to be united in Christ because we are united in Christ. We are the only ones on the planet that should truly get it. Politics won't do that for you. Government can't do that for you. It is, wokeism won't do that for you. It is Christ in him alone that unites us at the foot of the cross. So he says, be united in love. Then he says, be completely understanding. And then he says, to know the mystery of God, which is Jesus Christ. Back in verse 2, he says, My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart, united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. In the previous chapter, in chapter 1, which I've not read for you, he also speaks of this mystery again. He says this. This is chapter 1, verse 26. He says, The mystery, there's the word, that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of his, this, here's the word, again, mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, he's speaking about all these mystery religions, and he's using a play on word and the philosophies of the day, and on and on I could go about that, but... In the end, it's the same in the 21st century. Jesus is a great big mystery to everybody. And I see them on TV talking about Jesus, people who are not Christians and don't know Jesus. They'll say, well, I've read the Bible and Jesus this and that. And I'm thinking, you have no idea what you're talking about. It's clearly a mystery to them. And they're not going to get it apart from Christ. I've told you this before, don't be surprised. Don't, don't be angered when you see somebody on the news say something about Christianity or Christian, Christians or churches or religion. They, they don't have any idea. They're on the outside looking in. They don't get it. It's a big mystery to them. And because it's a mystery, Paul says it's just a bunch of gibberish to them. And I hear them make that claim too. And they're right. To them, it is gibberish. And so that's the goal, that it be revealed. It's no longer a mystery. They understand and realize it is Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 says it this way. For God, this is Paul speaking to a different church. For God who has said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge. There's the word knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure. There's that word treasure again in jars of clay to show that this all surpassing power is from God and not from us. So we have this knowledge given to us. That is Christ. The face, the face of Christ is what he mentions here. The story is told or, uh, that one day William Randolph Hearst was looking through a book of famous artwork. And you may have heard of this story before as well. He loved paintings in particular. And he came across a painting that, that caught his eye. A very wealthy man. He said to his assistants, he said, I want this painting for my collection. I like it. It just kind of pops out at me. It'd be nice that you have so much money you could just say to your aides, hey, I want this. Go get this for me. But after making some inquiries, they reported that they were unable to locate that particular work. It just wasn't available. He said this, if you value your jobs, do whatever it takes to find that treasure and secure it for me immediately. With their jobs on the line, they started looking more passionately. Three and a half months later, the aides returned to Hearst, and he said, did you find the treasure? Did you find my painting? 
Yes, they replied. After much searching and painstaking research, we found it. He said, did you purchase it? No, they said, we couldn't. He said, why couldn't you? And they said, well, because we found it in your warehouse. He had that treasure, that painting that he had to have that he just loved so much and he didn't even realize he owned it all that time. What a tragedy for people in this world, in this country, many of whom may own a Bible, but they're going to go to judgment and they had that treasure all along and they didn't even know it. They didn't even realize it. You understand why Paul calls it a mystery, calls it a treasure because that's what it is. Goal number two. Goal number one, ultimately, is to come to faith in Christ. Goal number two. Paul says to all believers, now that you've met your first goal in life, says to all churches, now that you've met your first goal as a church to know Christ, that is to become a Christian, a Christ follower, you need to proceed to your second goal, which he shares in verse 6 through 8. And I had not read this, the very next verse, I haven't read this to you yet. Look with me in chapter 2 of Colossians, verse 6. He says this, So then, that is now that you've accepted Christ, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him rooted and built up in him. Listen to this word, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than Christ. Now he says a lot right there, and let me just go through it very quickly because I know that we're running out of time. He says, now that you've accepted Christ as Lord, now look at the words, rooted, Built up, strengthened, overflowing, thankfulness. These are powerful words that he puts all together in a beautiful way to help us to understand our goal as a church once we get saved, our goal as individuals once we get saved. This is the goal. This is what he's telling us to do. The goal is to be built up, strengthened, and ultimately overflowing with thanksgiving. Which is extraordinary that that's the result of Christian maturity, thankfulness. Of all the things he could have said, he could have talked about, you know, some kind of Yoda, guru kind of character that has all wisdom and all knowledge. He says, no, let me tell you what the result is of this super spiritual maturity. You're thankful. <laughs> and so if you're not thankful, if you say things all the time where you're not thankful, you're thankless, it tells me that you're not there. When I see in the news, uh, sports teams from the United States refuse to stand for the anthem, refuse to put their hand over their heart. My father and his generation, oh my goodness, their safety would be, uh, that'd be their last day on that sports team. You just didn't do that. You just didn't do that. People who have no thankfulness for all the great things that are, 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 are afforded them because they live in this country and are citizens of this country. What a privilege. There's a reason that people are trying to sneak into our country by the tens of thousands or by the millions. And I see people who are thankless. Well, even worse, when I see people in the kingdom who are not thankful, even worse than that, when I am not thankful for all the good things that God does for me, Thankfulness is the goal. We'll get to that in just a moment. But he says this, to be built up, strengthened, and overflowing with thankfulness. To be built up and strengthened. 
You got saved. God bless you. Now what? Well, he tells us. He wants to be, now that we're rooted in Christ, he wants to grow up in Christ. He wants us to get stronger. A few weeks ago, when I went to the Philippines, I'm sitting on a plane with 20-something hours and nothing to do. What a flight. I'm in this tin can along with a bunch of other people who, who were not, you know, I don't, it's not fun. We went on uh, an Asian airline, so the food was Asian, and, which is great if you love Asian food. Not my favorite airline food. I'll just say it th that way. Again, uh, God's, God's little humor in my life that he had me marry an Asian. And, uh, but I have learned to love and appreciate Asians more than Asian food. And so I'm on the plane. I got nothing to do. I didn't eat any of the food. I uh, instead uh, drank my Coca-Cola and I watched movies because they have this little screen in front of you. And they give you all these movies. You can watch just hundreds and hundreds of movies. And so I watched a movie. It just came out. It didn't go to the theaters. It went to Netflix or one of the stream, Apple or one of the streaming services. And it had an actor. I didn't know, any, I didn't know anything about the movie. I've never heard of it. You know, you're bored. I, you know, I watched all the movies I wanted to see and... and and still had, out of the 16 hours of that flight, I still had 14 hours left. And so I watched this movie, and it had an actor in it named Chris Evans. Do you know who Chris Evans is? He's Captain America. Yay! The, the first Avenger. Yeah, and so he's been making movies, uh, uh, Captain America movies, for a very long time now, for the last 15 or 20 years, Captain America. And I love Captain America. I love the story about Captain America, because at the beginning, particularly, I connect with Captain America in the before stage. <laughs> before this miracle drug was given him, this little scrawny guy, couldn't pass the physical. Yeah, hello. So, yeah. And our associate pastor, I'm sure, identifies with him as well. Chris, he's even skinnier than me. And, and so, you know, and then they decide to have this experiment. They, they inject him with this, this chemical, and he comes out of this pod looking like Captain America. That's awesome. Where do I get my shot? Let's do that. Well, of course, life doesn't work that way, but here's what's extraordinary. Somebody interviewed Chris Evans one time. I, saw, I happened to see this interview on TV, and they said, because he'd done other movies where he wasn't all bulky like that, they said, how did you get that big? How did you get that muscular? Because he's a big dude. And he said this. He said, well, here's how we did it. Here's how I did it. I, I worked out full-time every day for eight months. He said, I built that physique day by day, eight months. And they were taken aback by that. I think they thought they, he would say, well, it took eight weeks or something like that. They weren't expecting him to say eight months. And that, so they gave him a little pushback and said, really, you did eight months? And he responded and he said this, I'll never forget. I'm paraphrasing because it's been a while since I saw the interview. He said, well, you need to think about this. What do you want to look like eight months from now? And that caused me to think and realize in eight months, mathematically, hypothetically, in eight months, I could look like Captain America. Now, it's not going to happen. <laughs> because eight months has come and gone many times since then, and I don't look at like him at all. And the reason is I'm not doing what he did, what Chris Evans did. He worked out every single day. 
just hours and hours, hundreds of hours, thousands of hours working out. And I know what needs to be done. I took a, believe it or not, I took a full year of weightlifting in college thinking I, I was going to bulk up. And uh, now I, I did tone up, but I didn't bulk up because I didn't spend eight months doing what he did. And apparently you haven't spent eight months doing what he did either. Those of you who are laughing at me, <laughs> preaching to the choir here, oh my goodness. Eight months away from looking like Captain America. Now, here's what got me. This movie that I went to see, which just came out with Chris Evans, because they retired Captain America a couple years ago, and he hasn't done it since then. So in this movie, it was a little shocking because he looked more like me than Captain America. Now, I recognized him immediately as Chris Evans. I could, I could you know, you, you can tell he has a very distinctive voice as well. You knew it was Chris Evans. But it was not the Chris Evans that I'm used to seeing. He was a little guy like myself. And you know why? Because he stopped working out. Um, here's the amazing thing about that is that when you stop working out, it'd be great if we could build up to that and then no, no more working out and we just kind of stay there. We don't get any bigger but we stay there, but that's not how the human body works. When you stop working out, you deflate all the way down to this. <laughs> yeah, that's just how it works, that's just how it is. Turns out people have been commenting to Chris Evans, I looked this up this week, about how much smaller he's gotten. He recently told Yahoo Entertainment when they asked him, he says, every time people see me, they're like, are you okay? You've lost weight. They're concerned for them because he looks like me. Um, I sometimes meet people who were once strong in their faith. They've been praying every day, reading their Bibles in a daily quiet time, going to church faithfully, serving in God's kingdom faithfully. And I catch them and they're on a rant. They're angry about something that this should not bother a mature Christian. Some, something has cut in on them and they, they have forgotten who they are in Christ. They, they say things that I would not expect a mature believer to say or it's been weeks or months since they have come to church or it's been a very long time since they uh, have served in any ministry capacity. Once they just served and served and served and now they're not doing anything. And I want to say the same thing thing to them that people say to Chris Evans only on a spiritual level, level, are you okay? You've lost weight. What's happened? Maybe it's time to get back in the gym of God's word and bulk up a little. When we are weak, we complain. We act like victims instead of victors. We give in to the lies of this world that says Christianity is in opposition to the culture, which is exactly what Paul was saying to the church in Colossae. He was deeply concerned for them. In fact, he, he warns them in this passage, not once, but twice. And I'll close with this. If you look in verse 4 and verse 8, did you notice that? I put them together here so you can see it. He says, I tell you th uh, this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. And then in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than Christ. Does that not sound like 2023? The basic principles of this world and not Christ. 
So he was concerned for them. Some, some of this was coming from a Jewish anti-Christ influence that Paul often had to deal with, but much of it was through Greek philosophy of the day that was all blended in with religion and the belief that we are saved through the right knowledge or secret knowledge. And so he's combating that in this passage. It's the follow the science kind of thinking, even though their science was just made up. For the Greeks, um, they came with philosophical principles that were considered progressive and concrete, and they were using that against Christianity to say these people are just a bunch of idiots. And so he warns them. He says, don't let that get to you. Don't let that stop you. Keep working out. Keep growing in the faith. Keep getting stronger. God will help you. And the result in verse 7, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Are you growing in Christ? Is your faith getting stronger? Is it evidenced by your thankful attitude most days? Then let us encourage one another. Be united in love as we discover the hidden treasure of the knowledge of Christ. Let's keep getting stronger and more thankful. Pray with me. Father, we love this passage. Thank you so much for it. It gives us a blueprint of our life, both individually and as a church. Two clear steps, two goals in life. First, that we come to the knowledge that Jesus loves us and died for us. We realize the gospel of Jesus Christ and its transforming power, and we submit to that because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our life. Oh, Father, for those that are not there today, bring them there, I pray. And help us as a congregation to encourage them as they continue on that journey to discover Christ. May today be the day they realize he loves them so much that he died for them. And that today, even now, they can experience true forgiveness. No band-aid approach, but absolute pardon. That their sins can be wiped out. Your word says that you will remember their sins no more. You will separate them as far as the east is from the west. They're gone. And we can have a new start, a new life today. Father, for those who have already been rooted in Christ and you've begun a good work in them, you've saved them and redeemed them, forgiven them. For many of those that are here that are like that, help us to grow up and be strengthened in our faith. We can't blame that on the world if we're not. It's not a political party's fault. It's not a government's fault. That's on us, because in Christ you have redeemed us, and we have the responsibility to step forward to strengthen ourselves in Christ, to grow up in Him. Remind us, Father, that the evidence that we have grown and strengthened and are mature is that we are thankful. Help us to have a life, a heart, and an attitude of thanksgiving. There's not a man or woman here today or watching online that couldn't complain all the time.
And we're tempted to do that, just like the world does. Everything's always bad. Everything's always somebody's fault. And there's always this injustice against someone else or against us. And we just whine and whine and whine and negative, 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 negative. But that's not what mature believers in Christ do. Help us to be thankful. May our thanksgiving in Christ shine in the darkness this week. As you're praying, no one's looking around. Is that you? Are you there? It may be you need to do some workouts, spiritually speaking, you and your Lord. Maybe you need to do what Paul did and spend some time agonizing in prayer for others. Oh, sweet agony. What blessings come as a result. Don't you know it gave Paul joy to be able to do that? Knowing his agonizing in prayer made a difference. God heard his prayer, responded to his prayer, and grew up mighty churches there. Would you work out a little bit this week on your knees in prayer? I challenge you to make that decision today, that commitment today, just quietly between you and your God. God, I'm going to start working out. I've gotten a little weak, gotten a little thin. I need to work out. And you do that through prayer and through his word. Maybe you've never come to faith in Christ, and this is the moment you need to give your life to Jesus. You need to come to Christ right now. You know you need to do it. Then don't wait. You don't know what's going to happen next week or tomorrow, and that's, what, that's the world talking. Right now, God is giving you an opportunity to change your life forever. And it's not complicated. I won't say it's not easy. You have to surrender yourself to Christ. You're not, the, you're not the boss anymore. He's the boss. You surrender to him and say, look, I'm a sheep and I need a shepherd. I've made some bad mistakes in my life. I've gone in bad directions and only Christ can fix it. And I surrender to him. Would you be willing to do that today? Just come up and say, pastor, I want to give my life to Jesus. Maybe God's calling you or your family to serve and become stronger in this church and you want to come up and say, Pastor, we'd like to join. If God is leading you right now to make a decision or you just want to come and kneel and pray before you, God, in a heart of thanksgiving, this opportunity is for you. Would you stand? No one's